for the 65th and final time. It's the movie hour. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. You're going to do all the talking this morning. My voice is getting croakier as we go on. It was ever thus. Me, yes. do, me doing all the talking. I was letters. talking to Anne a little earlier. She said, you sound all right on air. Over the phone, you sound lousy. Thank you, Anne. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I a have a voice made for radio, or I have a cold voice made for radio, obviously. And I have a face for radio, so that balances <laughs> it out. So, yeah, we kind of ended as we yes. began with that piece of bit. Indeed, yes. From uh, Beaches, my favourite film from 1989. Mm. A, a classic and... Uh, We'll have a few more of our favourite tracks um, during the next couple of hours because we've we've given ourselves an extra hour this week. We have indeed. So shall we give them an idea of what's coming up? Why don't you? Uh, the first hour is going to be pretty much standard. We'll be uh, having a look at the new releases, uh, doing the top ten in just a second, and then our cult film is Night of the Living Dead, the debut by George A. Romero. And then in the second half, uh, we will be uh, having a countdown of my top ten rants. We'll be having a very brief look forward to... Uh, a few of the releases that I'm looking forward to in the next six months. And as well as that, we'll be doing a little slot called The Ones That Got Away. We'll be looking at five films that are deserving of cult status, but just didn't cut the mustard to warrant half an hour on this show. Had we made it to a hundred shows? I think we would have got to them eventually. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it feels fitting to be retiring after our 65th instalment. It does, yes. Yes, particularly my voice today. <laughs> anyway, um, I went to see um, Woman in Black, or Black Woman. What's it called? It is the Woman in Black. The Woman in Black. You're thinking of the Fleetwood Mac yes. thing called Black Magic yes. Woman. <laughs> and it uh, reminded me of um, Central Television uh, in the Midlands, was it ATV in those days, in the 70s, uh, when Peter Tomlinson used to come on for the Friday night movie, clutching uh, when they had Envision continuity announcement, and he'd be there clutching his teddy bear. Yes, I remember. Uh, I think I wish I'd taken my teddy with me last Well, you last Saturday. I was. It's really good. Yes. I'm really glad that it worked for you because yes. one of the things about recommending horror films, particularly if yes. you've been scared by them, is you're always wondering, well, will it yes. be scary enough for everyone else? And I'm oh, really yes. yes, yes. Grown men do scream. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Did you go with Vaughn? Yes, I did. Yes. yes. I was yes. going to say, if you went on your own, you yes. might not have come out alive. No. No. Lots of gasps and screams. At many, many points, actually. Was it a full yes. house at the place? Uh, it was indeed. Very full house. And, That's very encouraging. Uh, quite a twist at the end. I didn't expect it. Yeah. We won't give it away. Yeah, it goes a bit the orphanage at the end, but I don't mind that at all. Right. So... Talking about the Playhouse, uh, tonight, or this afternoon rather, at two o'clock, they've got The Pirates, which is now out of the top ten, so we better say a bit about yeah, it. Yeah, The Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists, or if you're going by the American title, it's The Pirates Band of Misfits. I think it's really great. I don't think it's quite up there with Curse of the Were-Rabbit among Ardman efforts, but really great fun, great performance by uh, by Hugh Grant and Imelda Staunton as a very angry Queen Victoria. It's got great visual humour. As with all the Ardman stuff, you won't see all the gags the first time but it's great family viewing and watch out for Brian Blessed's cameo because it is fantastic. There you are. Probably rather better than tonight's film at 7.30, Mirror Mirror. Yeah, which we'll kind of come on to because of Snow White and the Huntsman still being in the top ten. I think that it's the weaker of the two so-called reinventions of Snow White. Tarsum Singh is someone who comes out of music videos and he can do pretty costumes but he can't do storytelling. And then Friday and Saturday, both nights at 7.30, it's going to be Joe Nesbo's Headhunters. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of following on from where the girl with the dragon tattoo let off. It's an interesting Scandinavian thriller. I don't think it's as groundbreaking as the girl with the dragon tattoo, the original version, of course. Um, but yeah, it'll satisfy you if you want a sort of an existential, slightly introspective thriller. Right. So that's it for this week. Um, 
Thursday, the 5th of July, though, 2 o'clock and 7.30 is going to be salmon fishing in the Yemen. Yep, which is, you know, Lasser Halstrom doing what he does yeah. best, which is slightly sugary smolts. Yeah. Anik 510785 is the box office number if you fancy going to see any of those. Um, they've only got one film to tell you about at the Maltings in really? Berwick, and then they're having a few weeks off, I guess lots of live action stuff. Um, and that is uh, this afternoon at 2.30, a new certificate called Hansel of Film. Which I haven't heard of, no. I'm afraid. You've, uh, you've caught me out. Shetland oh. to Southampton and back. Right. Um, oh, I see. Actually, it's not a film at all. So uh, read that while I uh, give the box office number out, which is 01289 oh. oh, yes, this is to do with the Shetland Film Festival, which right. is curated by my uh, my, my uh, idol, uh, Mark Kermode, and his wife, Linda Ruth Williams, who is yeah. a professor of erotic thrillers at uh, Southampton. Now, there's a job. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when you yeah, get to watch softcore pornography all day and write about how artistic it is. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I, the yes. Shetland Film Festival is very interesting, because up until recently, Shetland didn't actually have a cinema, and Mark Kermode was actually instrumental in getting somewhere purpose-built for that region. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, the top ten this week. Well, they do get better, but number ten, uh, Don Gatto e Supandilla. Which is uh, Top Cat the movie, and it's awful. It basically takes everything that was really spot on about <laughs> the, uh, the TV show, which, you know, the sort of rolling back admiration. It was kind of classic Hanna-Barbera. And what they do is they put it in 3D, they update it, they give it sort of poor pop culture jokes, and it just feels like your childhood is being destroyed in front of your eyes. And number nine, is this a tad formulaic? What to expect when you're expecting? Uh, yes. I mean, it is a yet another guest list comedy, you know, following on from the likes of New Year's Eve, which we'll come to later because it's surprise surprise it's in the top 10 rants um basically all the jokes about pregnancy were done much better in nine months the chris columbus film which is in itself not brilliant but it has got a very good performance by julianne moore and i just don't believe that jennifer lopez is a troubled single mum i mean if you want a jennifer Lo an indicative jennifer lopez performance go and watch tarzan sings the cell in which she gets to sort of wander around in pretty costumes and be sort of up herself a bit she even dresses up as the virgin mary in that film and that's going a bit far Right, number eight, hopefully a little bit better, is Fast Girls. Now, this is surprisingly enjoyable. It's a feel-good film which, in, which follows the fortunes of the British female sprint relay team on their way to possible success at the Olympics. It's a fictional story, of course. I mean, you could be very cynical about it, partly because of the timing, the fact that, you know, along with the re-release of Chariots of Fire, it's being put out there to cash in on the public fervour surrounding the Olympics. And it does openly pander to Chariots of Fire. I mean, there is a sequence, for instance, where... One of the girls' trainers, who's played by Phil Davis, you know, him out of Quadrophenia, yeah. um, says, you know, takes them aside saying, I've got you this far, but I won't be coming to watch you race. Which, of course, if you remember Chariots of Fire, is what, exactly what Ian Holmes' character does. Yeah. And there's that brilliant moment in Chariots of Fire where Ian Holm is sitting in a hotel after Harold Abrahams has raced, has won his race, and he just looks over at the stadium and sees the Union Jack just going up the big flagpole, which shows that he's won gold. And instead of jumping around, he sits very calmly on his bed and then punches through his straw boater and goes, Yes! <laughs> so, it does pander the chariots of fire, but if you put the, the opportunistic release out of your mind, I think it's on a par with something like Bend It Like Beckham. It's a perfectly decent, feel-good comedy, and it will yeah. satisfy you. Right, on to number seven, and Marvel's The Avengers. Which Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson. Yep, yeah, we've kind of said all we can about it. I still think it's the best we could have expected, and Josh Whedon does a very good job of trying to get underneath the pyrotechnics, although I'm still not sure about Tom Hiddleston as an actor. I just don't rate him. 
Number six, Red Lights. Which is a disappointing second feature from Rodrigo Cortez, who is a Mexican filmmaker who started off really well with Buried, which was a very tense, very claustrophobic film about um, someone buried in a coffin and just trying to get out. It was like a modern-day version of The Vanishing, which is a very, which is still, I think, the scariest 12 certificate film you can come across. I mean, from the late 1980s, a Dutch film, see the original version. I mean, it starts off as a decent enough film in which, you know, it's Sigourney Weaver and Killian Murphy going around, you know, as paranormal researchers going around debunking mediums and psychics. Yeah. And then they come across a character played by Robert De Niro, who is a, a sort of blind faith healer who's come out of retirement. And eventually it becomes more and more silly until, you no, know, in the manner of Robert De Niro, it ends up ripping off Angel Heart by constant distance. You know, Angel Heart did all the sort of the supernatural, slightly Faustian thing very well. Go and check the podcast. So that's dangerous territory. I'm also a little bit concerned by, you know, Elizabeth Olsen, who, you know, started out really great in Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, but does seem to be getting pigeonholed into the slightly whacked out horror roles because of course not so long ago she was in the remake of the silent house in which she was basically being told to be hysterical for 90 minutes and that'll do i mean she's a very good actress but i just she needs to move on i think a little bit okay on to number five the pact not scary Number four, Rock of Ages. now i'm really sorry that i didn't get to review this last week because as you you said i was ill and i if if i had reviewed it last week, it would have ended up in the top ten rants because I think it's absolutely horrendous. The story, I know, it's based off the Broadway musical, which um, I think in one form of its incarnations had Justin Lee Collins in a lead role. I mean, when I was last in London, there were sort of posters, yeah. although it looked like sort of the king of naffness. And it's directed by Adam Shankman, who, you know, started out his career really terribly with things like Cheaper by the Dozen 2, but, if, but then out of nowhere made Hairspray, which was the remake of the John Waters film from the late 80s with John Travolta Walter in drag and was actually quite good. Yeah. The very good supporting role for Christopher Walken. Um, so the story is you have a young couple growing up in Hollywood in 1987 trying to find love to a soft rock soundtrack emanating from this place called the Bourbon or Bourbon Club, which is being run by an evil promoter played by Paul Giamatti. You have Tom Cruise as an aging rocker called Stacey Jacks and Catherine Zeta Jones as a religious fundamentalist who wants to close it down. Three big problems. First of all, I mean, I'm not a soft rock fan, but the songs are terrible. I mean, they're very poorly produced, and he does feel like... There was that comment that Mark Kermode made about uh, Johnny Depp's performance in Pirates of the Caribbean, saying he was effectively being a drunken karaoke singer in a very yeah. small room. And this is like drunken karaoke. Secondly, the plot makes Flashdance look like Grease. <laughs> and, no, no, for all the problems that I have with Grease in terms of its slightly sort of shiny parts, at least Grease had a real story that felt like it was going somewhere, not just oh we've got to get from this song to this song yeah. so let's have the clunkiest bit of dialogue that we can possibly imagine thirdly the performances are really poor i mean i've always criticized tom cruise for trying too hard saying you know look at me i'm talented i can be noticed give me an oscar please and there was that great thing about you know his entire performance in the last samurai was give me an oscar and he wasn't even nominated and he just wanders around you no know, trying to play this yeah. aging lothario there's a bit of iggy pop in there and he wanders around with his shirt off and you just think no tom i mean I don't mind you playing these kinds of roles, but you look grotesque and don't take it seriously. It is just a plastic, overly monotonous, headache-inducing piece of naffness that shouldn't be touched with a 20-foot mullet. Other than that, you quite like him. Exactly. <laughs> That's become your catchphrase for yes. this. Right, number three, Snow White and the Huntsman. Which is, like I said, the better of the two Snow White reinterpretations, if only because, unlike Mirror Mirror, it doesn't just degenerate into poor slapstick with pretty costumes. I think that if you don't, it's, it's a good film if you don't think about it too much. It is, in the end, a glorified pop video, but the production yeah. design and special effects are quite good. And Charlize Theron does acquit herself perfectly well as an evil queen. There you are. And number two, it's uh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones back again. 
in Men in Black 3. Yeah, although funnily enough, Tommy Lee Jones is only in it for about 20-odd minutes because he turns up at the start and then they go back to the 60s where he's he, he, the younger version of his character yeah. is played by Josh Brolin and then he comes back at the end when everything's fixed. It's not as bad as the second one, which was incredibly perfunctory, but it's not as good as the first one. The big problem is that it feels like it's been written by a committee, whereas what made Men in Black 1 so special was the fact that it was a mainstream blockbuster with a, a spikiness to it. It felt like something that had, you know, slipped underneath yeah. you know, yeah. the parapet and it was very interesting, but this isn't, it's a bit dull, frankly. And at number one, Prometheus. It's the tree of life in space. Um, it's very deeply flawed. There are too many characters. The plot increasingly is a bit of a mess. The mechanics of the alien world don't work quite as well as they did in Alien itself or indeed in the sequels. And the ending, the last ten minutes, are effectively like setting up a sequel. I mean, turn off your ears for five seconds if you don't want to know, but I think the more radical ending would have been to kill off Numira Pass and leave it at that. But... It's visually extraordinary. I mean, even when Ridley Scott is treading water, he does have this brilliant knack of creating unique cinematic yeah. worlds, which few directors are as good at. And there are enough intriguing or interesting ideas in it to make me overlook or forgive most of its flaws. So, recommendations? Prometheus, obviously conditionally, because, you know, it, it is dividing audiences. Uh, the Avengers, if you haven't seen it already, and Fast Girls, because, hey, it's the Olympics and we all need to feel good sometimes. Right, we are going to have some of our favourite film tracks today. This is one, if I had a voice, I'd sing along to. Lying Hard Radio. Yeah, that was the first film I ever went to see, Mary Poppins. Yeah. It's great. Absolutely brilliant. Yes. yes. Chim Chimney. Yes. Indeed. I used to have, um, I think it was one of the first films I actually saw as well, because we had the uh, a VHS tape of it recorded off TV, and I used yeah. to watch it on a loop when I was young. Yes. So, sung in a beautiful accent. So realistic. <laughs> yes, I was saying to you, I, I, there's the, no, that moment where he says, good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. Yeah. For years and years, I thought it was good luck Wilfred Bob. And I'm thinking, who is Wilfred? <laughs> because he's never mentioned in the film, who is this Wilfred Bob? Yes. But, uh, yeah. Yes. Finally, it comes, becomes clear and uh, everything is well. Right. I was talking earlier about uh, needing me teddy bear on a Friday night, or Peter Tomlinson used to have his. You need it for this one, won't you? you Our cult film this week. You need a lot more than your teddy bear. Make sure it's buried properly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, our last cult film is Night of the Living Dead, a 1968 horror movie which is credited as creating the modern zombie movie. Uh, there had been films and stories about zombies stretching as far back as the 20s and 30s with things like William Seabrook's novel The Magic Island from 1929. The first zombie film is widely regarded to be Victor Halperin's White Zombie featuring Bela Lugosi in one of his non-vampiric roles, although he does still yeah. look very pale and pasty. Uh, this is the film which set the template for depictions of zombies in popular cinema, although, it, as will become clear, the roots of George Romero's work is actually in the Richard Matheson short story I Am Legend, which has inspired three films which we'll come on to. So it's the directorial debut by George A. Romero, uh, who is often mistakenly just called George Romero, but the A is actual part of his official yeah. credit. And it's the first part of his zombie trilogy, the others being Dawn of the Dead from 1978 and Day of the Dead from 1985, and the former was remade by Zack Snyder in 2004, and we'll come back to that again, because in the rants there is a brief mention of Sucker Punch, just a brief mention. Um, Romero's other works, I mean, he's he's often just called the zombie director, and increasingly he has, you know, made a few too many zombie films, because more recently he did Diary of the Dead and Land of the Dead and Survival yeah. of the Dead, you no know, playing on the found footage stuff, but he's also done things like The Crazy which was about townsfolk turning on each other. That was made in the mid-70s, subsequently remade a 
about three years ago. Uh, he contributed to the Creep Show portmanteau film, which also, which was based largely off the work of Stephen King. Most notably, from my point of view, he did a very great, a really great vampire film called Martin, around the time of Dawn of the Dead, where you have a young kid called Martin and, you know, who's pretending to be a vampire and actually going around drinking people's blood, but the question is, is it just psychosomatic or is he actually a member of yeah. the undead? And that's a very good film. He also apparently, and this is a little thing that I didn't realise, if you watch The Silence of the Lambs very, very closely, he has a walk-on cameo as uh -huh. one of the FBI agents didn't know that. when Hannibal Lecter's been yeah. transferred to um, Philadelphia, I think. Yeah. You know, it's a love your suit, that moment. Filmed on a very low budget of about $114,000 and ended up taking about $42 million, but as will become clear, it had a very rough time with the censors and audience. It eventually became known as one of the great midnight movies alongside the early works of John Waters, who we yeah. mentioned during the top ten, and the, the great South American filmmaker Alejandro Hodorowsky, who made El Topo and the Holy Mountain, a bonkers film, makes Ken Russell look normal. Um, so the, the plot is, it's set in rural Pennsylvania in the late 1960s, and it begins with a shot of a car containing siblings Barbara, played by Judith O'Dea, and Johnny, played by Russell Striner, who they've driven right across America to lay flowers on their father's grave and uh, having laid flowers on their father's grave johnny teases his sister who has a sort of childhood fear of ghosts by wandering around being spooky and saying yeah. they're coming to get you barbara <laughs> which is very deliberately hokey all of a sudden they are attacked by a strange man who is wandering around in the background looking a bit shifty and johnny gets knocked out barbara manages to escape in the car and winds up at a deserted house in the middle of nowhere at the house, she meets a black man called Ben, played by Dwayne Jones, who is sharing a house with a couple and their young child. And we find that there are more of these strange men converging on the house. It eventually transpires that, in classic B-movie fashion, alien radiation has caused the dead to rise up from their graves to stop being dead, and you have the inaugural zombie apocalypse. Yeah. So, yes, you definitely need your teddy bear for that sort of thing. Um... There was an interview that John Landis gave on BBC Radio 5 Live when he was promoting his new book, Monsters at the Movies, which was a, a pictorial history of monsters in films. Very good work. And he made a comment that despite the fact that, you know, we tend to associate the early 21st century with vampires because of yeah. Twilight and Innocent Blood, and that's uh, not Innocent Blood, True Blood, Innocent Blood is a John Landis film. Um, he said that the default monsters of the early 21st century are actually zombies. I mean, you look at things like you know, the retooling of Dawn of the Dead, infected movies like 28 days and 28 weeks later in which you know it's they're effectively zombies because yeah, it's a flesh-eating yeah. virus involved and then you look at spoofs like Shaun of the Dead and Zombieland and most recently something like Juan of the Dead which is a Mexican version of Shaun of the Dead you know zombies have become the go-to monster for the reason that they're very cheap to make you know you don't need much in the way of makeup just a bit yeah. of fake blood and wandering around sort of going <laughs> and you can choose whether they can be overladen with social commentary or just yeah. played for laughs because one of the things about Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead is that he made the zombies move very quickly. Whereas if you've seen the original Dawn of the Dead, they kind of hang around so that people can yeah. weave in and out of them on motorbikes and bash them in the head all the time. Um, you might think that because of the fact that zombies are everywhere, you'd look at the Night of the Living Dead and think, well, it was important at the time, but it doesn't really hold up. I mean, you know, it's a very low-budget film shot entirely in black and white, um, and it doesn't, you know, certainly it doesn't hold up in terms of grossness to anything like the sequels. I mean, the later stages of Dawn of the Dead, the original version, are actually quite full-on. Yeah. Right? Particularly when Tom Savini's motorbike gang comes in. <laughs> but what it is, however, is really 
terrifying. It's a deeply unnerving film whose substance still rings true after 45 yeah. years. And no, even as speaking as a seasoned horror fan who saw this at midnight, you know, in the comfort of my own home, I was really freaked out by it. So that's the greatest compliment I can give it. It is very difficult to imagine the kind of outcry that Romero's film created the first time around. I mean, the, the reason for the controversy was that when it was first released in early 1968, it was put alongside matinee screenings of classic studio horror like James Wells' Frankenstein yeah. and Val Luton's Curse of the Cat, old, old sort of black and white films. And because the MPAA rating system was not in place until I think a month after it got released, yeah. it was shoved in with you certificate stuff. So you had a situation Whoops. where yes, so you had a situation where lots of young children were you know, going in saying, "Oh, we're going to see a fantastic old-fashioned horror film. It's going to be like Abbott Costello and Bela Lugosi's Wandering," yeah. and coming out completely traumatized out of their skin. So after the public outcry, including a review in Variety which called it an unrelieved orgy of sadism, the film was pulled from mainstream theatres only to be picked up on the midnight movie circuit and yeah. it got a much more devoted following second time round. And looking at the film today, the terror of Night of the Living Dead derives from two completely different sources. One of them is exactly the same kind of shock that would have greeted audiences then of the monsters are exactly like us, you know, they're dressed like us, they move yeah. like us, the only difference is they eat human flesh and want our brains. And on the other hand, there's the continuing political resonance with, you know, the themes of racism and revolution and the Vietnam War, which do still strike a chord in our society. I mean, up to Night of the Living Dead, the big distinction about it is that popular horror had, by and large, externalised or marginalised the monsters. I mean, if you look at something like The War of the Worlds or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, both from the mid-50s, they used alien invasions as, no, effectively an allegory for communist infiltration, reds under the beds yeah. and that sort of thing. But they did that by depicting the enemy as something that was totally unhuman, yeah. something that had to be eradicated and couldn't possibly be understood. <laughs> no, so whether the, you're talking about the tripods in War of the Worlds or the pod people in Body Snatchers, even though the pod people do sort of become humans, yeah. there is this thing of they're so different to our heroic American protagonists that the films were never quite as scary or unnerving as perhaps they could have been and that's why Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is much scarier yeah. than the original particularly that really terrifying final scene with the camera zooming in on Donald Sutherland for reasons that we won't go into because it would give away the twist um so Romero's film incorporates all those, a lot of classic B-movie elements into the storyline. I mean, you, you have the hapless heroine, you have the expository radio broadcast, which eventually tells you what's going on. You have the phone lines being completely down, and basically everything's blamed yeah. on alien radiation because, hey, it was, the, it was the 50s and 60s. I mean, this was the time, you know, where there's a line in Thunderbirds, I think, when they're using nuclear-powered ovens and nuclear-powered fridges. Yes. <laughs> it was the time when nuclear power will solve yeah. everything and it's also the biggest problem and so on and so forth. But none of these B-movie elements are ever allowed to become the centerpiece sort of pushing the zombies into the background. And Romero's too good to let that happen and he just uses the B-movie riffs as a kind of comfort zone. So we, we have a certain degree of familiarity in terms yeah. of set up so that when the really when the blue collar monsters come at us and make us sort of question our perceptions of our fellow man we do have something to fall back yeah. on rather than just oh look at this entirely new we're going to be really scared and yeah because audiences need a way in this is shown very much in the very creepy first scene where, like I say, it starts off with Johnny sort of taunting Barbara in that very hokey way. No, yeah. kind of in the same sort of territory as Abbott and Costello sort of playing on the ghosty thing and going, in a very hokey way. And you see a guy sort of shambling around in the background thinking, oh, 
looks exactly like us, maybe moving a bit slowly, but there's nothing wrong with him. And then as soon as he attacks, it's like the ordinary has become the terrifying. Yeah. And it just completely sneaks up on you, and you're instantly thrust into this world that you know nothing about. It's like entering the Twilight Zone, to some extent. I'm fancy to sort of play the music. The film is a brilliant examination of racism. I mean, it's, it's one of the films that you can point to if you want, if you've got someone who says, well, horror films are just about blood, they're all about gore, yeah. there's nothing to say. Night of the Living Dead is very clearly not just about that. It does tackle the stereotypes associated with the role and place of black people in American society and does the thing of tension between blacks and whites a lot more effectively than something like, for instance, in The Heat of the Night, where, you know, um, Sidney Poitier saying that famous line, they call me Mr. Tibbs, yeah. which, if you look at it now, is just a bit preachy. I guess back in 1968, it would have been very raw as well, wouldn't it? Yes, it would, because of the civil yes. rights movement and you know, Martin Luther King. Yeah. I don't know whether it would... Yeah, so there was that, and actually... <laughs> Poitier aside, it was still very unusual to cast a black actor yeah. in a leading role. Now, it, there were still some conventions, of course, of getting white actors to black face up. I mean, if, even if you go forward to uh, to the A-Team, for instance, where you know, Mr. T was the only black actor working yeah. on that show to the extent that when they did his stunts, they would actually paint a white stunt double in cocoa powder and shoot him from a long way off. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's we, we think we've moved on, but, you know, yes. it, it's that kind of racist attitude has just come along in slightly different ways. I mean, much of the racial politics of it are rooted, like I say, in the Richard Matheson novel *I Am Legend*, which was you no, know, which had been adapted previously as *The Last Man on Earth* in '64, yeah. and would after this be made again as *The Omega Man* with Charlton Heston. Um, and you no, know, Matheson wasn't a big fan of Romero's film. He said it was cornball and slightly cheesy, but he he can't. No, in comparison to *The Omega Man*, I think he would have given it his blessing. And obviously, *The Omega Man* was later remade as *I Am Legend* in 2008, yeah. 2007 with Will Smith. And running through these works is the idea of protagonists who come to realise their hopeless and inferior position, letting the old ways pass and submitting to the new order. But whereas the book of Iron Legend ends with John Neville sitting in his cell becoming philosophical about his execution, Ben has no choice and no, in a very shocking ending, turn off for 10 seconds if you don't want to know, he emerges as the last survivor of the, the immediate zombie yeah. apocalypse um, and a, a group of you know, um, mounted rangers surround the house thinking that there's few still in there and they mistake him for a zombie and no, yeah. bullet straight through the head, dead, end of film. Mm. So yeah, that's a bit of a shocking ending. Romero described Night of the Living Dead in terms of being a film about revolution, I mean, you've got the obvious revolution, which is, you know, the dead aren't dead anymore, which is, you know, he kind of takes seriously what John Landis would later play for laughs in an American yeah. werewolf in London. But less frivolously, the zombies are characterised as this unstoppable wave. It's, it's a kind of counterculture of death quite literally destroying the old way of life. And the traditional family unit, which is epitomised by, you know, it's, it's basically destroyed over the course of the film because on the one hand you have brother and sister getting separated at the start of the film and on the other hand you have the, the young family hiding in the basement yeah. whose daughter becomes possessed and there's that very creepy moment of the daughter who's become a zombie you know, marching towards her mother who has shrunken into a corner and the camera gets closer and closer to her face and then there's a scream and it goes yeah. to black. I mean that it's the whole thing of both the rise of youth yeah. and also the erosion of family bonds in favour of individualism and pure greed, yeah. which would come out in the sequel, because Dawn of the Dead's all about commercialism. 
Like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a few years later, it also touches on the impact of the Vietnam War. I mean, Toby Hooper, when he was interviewed about Texas Chainsaw, was you know, very much saying it's a film about nihilism, it's a film about the emotional trauma of Vietnam. And in this interpretation, the zombies are either the brain-dead soldiers returning home in their droves and, you know, being unable to reintegrate yeah. themselves into society so they just prey on innocent people. Or alternatively, they're the embodiment of American war guilt and you know, something that's constantly hanging over the population that's going to reshape society and just can't get away with and no it's tormenting people to the point where again literally they lose their minds because of course these zombies are eating yeah. people's brains what makes night of the living dead so effective as a horror movie is the fact that it is so brilliantly invasive it's 90 minutes long and you know by confining the actions to a f the, to a few s very small rooms in the same way that day of the dead would it, romero achieves this natural sense of claustrophobia which he exacerbates further by the by the very intrusive handheld camera work i mean the recurring images of sort of hands coming through the barricade into the house are akin to those images in roman polanski's repulsion where you have catherine Deneuve as this you know woman who has a morbid fear of male physical touch yeah. wandering down a corridor where these demons are coming out of the wall and trying to sort of molest her with their hands it's a very uncomfortable scene but it yeah, is terrifying sure. and in both films, the threat is it's breaking in rather than just exploding out. It's not like an alien invasion where the energy is going in all directions and you might get caught up with it. It's actually something which is being... It's an endemic threat, but it's also being concentrated, so you can't get away and it's also being focused on you, and that makes it doubly scary. The performances are very, very good, you know, cementing both the level of allegory and the tension involved. Dwayne Jones and Judith O'Dea apparently improvised a lot of their dialogue, um, adding another layer of chilling realism, yeah. the fact that they were kind of making it up as they went along. Carl uh, Hardman gives a very good performance. He is the loudest and the brashest of the characters because he plays the, the father of the couple hiding in the basement, yeah. who is also has very racist tendencies about him he's inherently suspicious of Dwayne Jones taking leadership of the group but although it's a relatively big performance there are sort of more subtle character shifts in him and you see how kind of much of a coward he is and how insecure he is um the heroes are, are not just fleshed out the the other thing that makes the film so interesting is that the zombies themselves have a personality I mean Marilyn Eastman who was one of the the supporting actresses also did the makeup and so you 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 effectively get people with just sort of bits of wax and yeah. bits of fake blood on their face but they do actually resemble real people and in it does in a similar way there's a moment in in the evil dead where um one of the characters you no know, because there's that's another zombie film and there's a moment where sort of the zombies are coming up from the basement and one of the human characters sees the zombie as if it was the human that it once was and they kind yeah. of feel sympathy for it and then get killed well night of the living dead does something similar i mean it always says these are monsters these are not these are no longer human but you find yourself sort of reading and putting personalities on the people particularly when you see the images of young children who are zombies yeah um so there's a real that's the real strength of it in the sense that it's that unlike the Zack snyder version of dawn of the dead where they are essentially fast moving cannon fodder and just digitally replicated yeah. so you could have the same one coming up a thousand times these feel like real people and again that makes it more terrifying so to sum up because we have got quite a bit to cram into uh, the the rest of the show it's a huge horror milestone and one of the best debut features of the 1960s the dialogue is occasionally a bit repetitive and one of the things that romero is not so good at is fleshing out female characters i mean it, particularly in this and dawn of the dead the female characters are a little yeah. underdeveloped and right. too easily hysterical but that's a, that's not a huge criticism uh, and the 
but in terms of political and social significance, it's still writ large. It's every bit as scary as you know, the Goria Cousins of Veg. I think it's, you no, know, the Dawn of the Dead has got two different versions. I think it's scarier than both of them. Day of the Dead is more nihilistic, so I like that a bit more. Romero's later zombie movies would push the boundaries of what could be shown on screen, but if you want pure and simple terror, the original's the best. Should we have something a little lighter now? Yes. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. And you tell me you haven't sung along to that one at night time in the pub. As a matter of fact, that, although I'm not the biggest fan of Grease, that song is a guilty pleasure. <laughs> it is indeed. Although yes. I can't think of Grease without um, thinking of the story about uh, the closing musical number, you're the one that I want. Yeah. The famous story that Olivia Newton-John was sewn into those trousers because they were made so small. <laughs> so certainly needed squeezing into yes, them. pleasant so. thought for teenage boys everywhere. <laughs> yes, indeed. Just don't watch Xanadu. By the way, if you're listening this morning and you have got a movie track, I can't guarantee we'll find it on our computer, but uh, if you want to text in 07961771073, we'd love to hear from you. Just before we get into the new releases, I have to tell you that trains really are in a bit of a mess this morning going northbound. I think we told you after the news that the 9.59 was running late. It's currently running 55 minutes late, due in at 6 minutes to 11. Floods and rain and stuff. Well, it's the wrong kind of rain. That's the problem. Yes. Wet. Yes. yes. As opposed to the other kind of rain. Right, the first of our new releases, The Five Year Engagement. Okay, it's the new romantic comedy from Nicholas Stoller, who um, is most famous for making Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which... It's okay in and of itself, but it is the film which we can blame for starting out Russell Brand's career in Hollywood, which has now given us Rock of Ages, in which he plays a British guy but can't do a British accent for some reason. Uh, it's also produced by Judd Apatow, who did Superbad. So not great start, but stay with me because this is an example of a pleasant surprise. The story follows a couple played by Emily Blunt, whom I really like, and Jason Siegel, who also co-wrote the film. And as the title suggests, they take year, five years to tie the knot, having become engaged, and it's builders taking place where most rom-coms end, and sort of various obstacles and nervous breakdowns come their way. I don't yeah. want to give away exactly what happens because that's the point of seeing the film. There was a great quote from Roger Ebert when Revolutionary Road was released because that was being billed as the first time Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio had acted together since Titanic and he gave this wonderful review that said essentially this is the unhappy marriage that would have resulted if Kate and Leo had survived Titanic because this is happens, what happens to marriages which are built on romance and nothing else. Yeah. Which is a brilliant quote. And what the film does very well is that it gives you pretty well-rounded characters in whom you can invest and it does show you how much effort is needed to make not just these kind of relationships but any kind of relationships work which you don't get in mainstream rom-coms very much particularly not these yeah. days so i think it does deserve credit for actually saying okay these aren't the most realistic people in the world in terms of the jobs that they do or where they come from but actually we understand how difficult it is to make a marriage work and the fact that a lot of the time it doesn't work and you don't just go off into the sunset yeah speaking of sunsets if you're a fan of richard linklater's uh, before sunrise and before sunset there's apparently going to be a third film made in that series oh, right. so that's something yeah. to look forward to 
on the downside with the five-year engagement, it is too long. It's just over two hours when it really needs to be 90 minutes. And some of the character developments in it are a little half-hearted. I mean, I think Jason Siegel's breakdown is a little too rushed through as if it's just rote. It's something yeah. that men in those kinds of films do. But it's by far and away the best thing that Judd Apatow has ever done. I mean, I, I haven't seen Bridesmaids, so I can't comment on how good that was. And Emily Blunt does what she so often does with mainstream films, which is that she comes into something that could be terribly ordinary and gives it a real sense of lift and you feel sort of, you know, happier for the fact that she's around. Classic case in point, the young Victoria could have been just a frothy merchant ivory yeah. mess, but she comes in and makes it really spiky and, you know, feisty. So... All in all, I recommend it, and it's not often that I recommend rom-coms. Good. Our next one, Think Like a Man. Is this looking a little sycophantic? Yeah. Um, it's the second rom-com of the week, based on the bestseller by Steve Harvey, which... Starring Steve Harvey. Yeah, exactly. About people who read a book by Steve Harvey. Yes, they must have paid him quite a bit of money, or at yes. least given him a fair share of the gross. It's directed by Tom Story ironically, uh, who also helmed both of the Fantastic Four films, which again gives you an idea of the territory. Story is there's four men, you no know, intertwining stories, who are pursuing four different women, but the women manage to resist their advances by, guess what, reading Steve Harvey's best-selling book called Think Like a Man and taking his advice to heart. Then the men discover that the reason the women are reading the book is that one of their owners dobbed them in, so they get a copy of the book and try and take on the advice from their point of view and get revenge and turn the tables and so forth. First of all, like you say, the film is essentially an advert for the book. Yeah. Because, no, basing a film on a book is absolutely fine. I mean, obviously that's fine. But actually having the book in the film, you have to make a decision. Because if you can do it the meta way of, like, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, the recent version, where they actually have Brendan Fraser referring to the Jules Verne novel as all these theme park stuff happens to them. But when you've actually got... A self-help film that's based on a self-help book which actually has the self-help book in it, that's very shallow and very, very cynical. Secondly, the whole central conceit of women getting one over on men by understanding their psychology, you think First Wives Club, which is a really good film yeah, about... Yeah. Some, yeah. And there's that fantastic line that Goldie Horn has in the First Wives Club about you know, the three ages of women in Hollywood, where it's secretary, mistress, and driving Miss Daisy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's a really good example of, no, of a battle of the genders comedy, which actually plays it smart and actually has real female characters in it. This is nowhere near as funny or as clever. I think the cast do the best that they can with the material they have, so you might get the odd laugh just from how enjoyable they are. But it is too shallow and much too proud of itself. Yeah. Onto a film that radioactive bears, Chernobyl Diaries. Yes, are you sure you, you took care of your teddy bear or is he coming back <laughs> from the grave? <laughs> you tied that in very nicely, didn't you? Yes, it? this is not going down well with the critics, though. Yes, unfortunately not. It's Chernobyl Diaries, which is the debut film by Bradley Parker, but more importantly, from, from a filmmaking point of view, it's written and produced by Oren Pelly, who's the guy who created Paranormal Activity. And as far as I'm aware, he was behind the sequels as well, to some extent. The story follows a group of six young holidaymakers in uh, the Ukraine, who hire an extreme tour guide to take them to the deserted city of Pripyat in the former Soviet Union, uh, where the former Chernobyl workers lived. And the thing about Pripyat was that the fact they had to evacuate it so quickly because of the radiation that everything about the city 
was pretty much left intact. I mean, it's it's like almost going to the ruins of Pompeii. I've seen yeah. photographs of the city, and it's it's very eerie, even looking at it today. So they go in on this sort of extreme tour, thinking, you know, we can get this on our cameras, it'll be good fun, let's take a risk, and soon discover that they are not alone. <laughs> so it's These actually... are the radioactive bears. <laughs> it is radioactive bears. <laughs> for some reason... Sorry, I... is this meant to be a comedy or a horror film? Well, you've actually got me thinking about the Care Bears now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that image is going to be rather hard to shift. <laughs> it's actually quite an interesting idea, which is undone by its execution. I mean, the central idea of, you know, people being picked off or attacked by some kind of mutated race of bears <laughs> is actually, you no. Know, to go back to Night of the Living Dead, it is a bit I Am Legend, because... No, I mean, there's no bears in I Am Legend, but it is the same idea yeah. of you know, radiation causing the problems. And all too quickly, the film resorts to that kind of whisper and scream approach of shaky camera films, where basically, I'll just stop being talked quietly. Oh, there's a monster! I'll just stop talking quietly, and so on and so forth, for the best part of 80-odd minutes. And it's not scary. You very quickly lose patience with it. None of the characters are interesting or remotely believable, and it has radioactive bears in. How can you take it seriously? Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Another film you can't take seriously, but for slightly different reasons. It's the new film by, this is a bit of a mouthful, Timur Bekmambetov, which is a name that trips off the tongue. He's the guy who did, who started out his career with the vampire-filmed action movies Night Watch and Day Watch, and then became most famous in Hollywood for Wanted, which was, you know, James McAvoy is drawn into this group of elite assassins, one of whom is played by Angelina Jolie, taught to bend bullets with his mind, and they receive their instructions from, and I'm not kidding, a machine called the Loom of Fate. It, it's, the thing about Wanted was that it was one of those films which was so unbelievably stupid, it was actually yeah. quite funny. And I, no, although it had nothing between its ears and the CGI was all over the place, he kind of enjoyed it in a guilty pleasure sort of way. This is being billed as the film to bring back serious, dangerous vampires, to which I say five words, let the right one in. Um, the premise is that way before he became a senator or a president, way before he went to the theatre, um, Abraham Lincoln's family were murdered by vampires and that he sought to eradicate them from the Protean United States and it attempts to tie in his quest to get rid of all vampires with his, you no know, abolitionist politics and yeah. going on against the background of the American Civil War. I mean, it is a very silly premise. I mean, there was... I, I, have, a, I have a friend who, you no, know, um, I respect her opinions, but has very different tastes in films than me, and she said it was the single most ridiculous thing she'd ever heard and couldn't imagine being dragged to see it. I mean... What I wanted from it was a film that did what it says on the tin, because Timabek Mambatov is not a great storyteller, but he has good silly spectacle. The problem is that the film can't balance the silliness of its central conceit with the serious ideas, where basically it tries to contrast the vampires feeding on the humans with the whites suppressing the blacks, and it never really gets in deep enough for that. So my advice is, either go and see Wanted, because it's stupid fun, or go and get James McTeague's The Raven, which is the film about Edgar Allan Poe solving murder mysteries. That's much better. Where do we go now? Yes, um, very quickly to this one, because there's not much to say. It's an art house comedy from Dean Labaki, who's a Lebanese filmmaker, made Caramel about two years ago. Set in a remote Lebanese village, uh, follows a group of women townsfolk trying to prevent the Christian and Muslim men from coming to blows, and they come up with all manner of different kinds of ruses to distract from conflict happening. It's not as good as Caramel. Um, Caramel was interesting because it was bittersweet and observational, whereas this feels like 
very much forced and contrived. It's like a farce that just happens to be set in yeah. Lebanon. And there are there are lots of moments which feel contrived. For instance, the moment where the women distract the men from their religious conflict by hiring a bunch of Ukrainian strippers. And I'm not sure that belongs in the film at all. There are odd moments of mirth and charm, but it's not as funny as it needs to be. And we end with the film of the week, Silent Souls. Yeah, indeed. A debut film by Russian writer-director Alexei Fedorchenko. Um, very well pronounced. Have I ever let you down on that front? No. Uh, so the story follows two men called Miron and Aist, that's Miron and Aist, uh, who are from the Merga culture, and which is an ancient tribe from the Lake Nero region in Russia who've become assimilated into Russian culture. Uh, Miron's wife Tanya dies, and the men have to transport her body hundreds of miles across Russia to bury her in the Mergan homeland, and on the way they sort of go on a journey of discovery yeah. and find out that actually their relationship is not what meets the eye. It is a very nicely observed elegiac art house effort which you know, manages to you know, look at things like burial customs with just enough reverence but not yeah. sort of getting too somber or depressing. The thing that it reminded me most of is um, there's a Vim Vendors film from the mid-70s called Kings of the Road which is an American road movie about two people driving yeah. across Route 66 and just talking about everything and nothing and eventually becoming the best of friends. And it does what Vim Vendors has always done at his best in stuff like Wings of Desire which is he takes very ordinary situations which could just be a bit dull and he shoots them beautifully but he also has this real sense of humanist affection for them and you really yeah. feel like they're real people emerging. I don't think it's as good as Vim Vendors because no, almost nothing is as good as Wings of Desire. I mean, that is a beautiful film. But it does show real promise for its director and if you can track it down you should take it up. Great, so that's your recommendation for this week. That is indeed. I mean, I would have the five-year engagement in reserve because it's a pleasant surprise but it is too long. Right, just a little snatch of music before the news. Well, it's sort of been the subject of the hour, really. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.